You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The recent news from the EU with their AI Act um, has has definitely put them sort of ahead of us uh, as far as you know thinking about actual regulations, penalties. You know what? What are what are going to be the costs of of you know doing wrong? You know, quote unquote, within AI. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's privacy surveillance law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host Ben Yellen from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hey, Ben. Hello, Dave. On today's show, Ben has the story of the NSA purchasing domestic internet data. I've got the story of an interesting pivot from Texas and Florida on their upcoming content moderation case in front of the Supreme Court. And later in the show, my conversation with Josh Hargess. He's the AI security chief for AI security firm Cranium. We're discussing some of the challenges organizations face when trying to build out a roadmap to comply with the EU AI Act. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. All right, Ben, we've got some interesting stories to share this week. You want to kick things off for us here? Yeah, so I have one that was uh, pretty widely shared over the internet over the last week, and that Mm. is about the National Security Agency buying Americans' internet data without warrants. Uh, And I'm using an article from the New York Times, although this uh, story really appeared in all news sources. Yeah. So you'll never guess which United States senator has been inquiring about the NSA uh, purchasing U.S. persons' internet data. She, let me guess. Uh, Ted Cruz. Yeah. Mm, You know, it would actually not be the least shocking thing for Ted Cruz to be concerned about. You know, you're right, actually. If you guessed Oregon Senator Ron Wyden, uh, you are correct. Okay. He was bugging the outgoing head of the National Security Agency, Paul Uh, Maxone. Bugging. Bugging. I see what what I did there. NSA yeah. joke there, Ben. That's uh, good. <laughs> I'm, I'm, all, I'm all good on the dad jokes. Yeah. Uh, so he was tormenting the agency uh-huh. uh, while their outgoing director was on his way out, and there was a scheduled confirmation hearing for the new director. Wyden, using his power as a United States senator to gum the works of the place, decided to put a hold on the nomination until he got an answer to this question about whether the NSA is purchasing logs related to U.S. persons' domestic internet activities. Mm. And it turns out, uh, through a letter that was revealed over the past couple of weeks, it was drafted to the Director of National Intelligence, and they CC'd uh, Senator Ron Wyden. Uh, Apparently, the NSA is purchasing such data. So 
The NSA argues that they are only purchasing internet metadata logs showing when two computers have communicated, but not the content of any message. Uh-huh. We know that metadata could be potentially very revealing when you put it in a type of mosaic where you reveal uh, which websites people are visiting, which people, uh, which addresses somebody is emailing with or interacting with on social media. Right. That can be very revealing about a person, even if you don't have the content of those conversations. From a legal perspective, obviously, for content, per um, at least circuit court precedent, you need to have a warrant to access the content of internet traffic, content of emails, basically, or social media posts. Right. What about metadata? Metadata you do not. However, and this is critical, there is a standard to obtain it through a judicially approved process. You don't have to have a traditional warrant, but you have to obtain a subpoena under Section 2703D of uh, the Stored Communications Act. Huh. Uh, and the standard for that is reasonable suspicion that the metadata is going to be useful in an ongoing investigation. Okay. So even though there's not a warrant requirement here, the purchasing of data is still an end around of the otherwise judicially supervised process uh, of obtaining this metadata. And I think that's what's very concerning thematically is what the government cannot obtain through a normal judicial process, whether it's a warrant or a subpoena, they have this end around of just going out and buying the data. Hmm. And I think Congress is right to be concerned about this. I mean, for one thing, Congress controls the purse strings. So it might be incumbent upon Congress to say, hey, you are not authorized to spend money on purchasing U.S. persons' internet traffic unless there's maybe some type of exigent circumstances or unless you obtain uh, a warrant or a subpoena to do so. I think uh, that's something that Congress will certainly consider now that this information has come to light. I think the disturbing thing is that what once required some investigative work and a judicial process and oversight from the executive and the judicial branch, you can just pay to go around all of those requirements And Americans are already distrustful of the NSA. We've seen that over the last decade Mm -hmm. as more and more of their activities have been revealed. We went through the Snowden disclosures and reauthorization of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, all those things. And so I think this just adds to the pile of reasons for U.S. persons to be concerned. You know, it's certainly something that stuck out to me when I saw it. One of the things that I believe that I saw here, and it's possible I'm mistaken, but that One of the justifications the NSA was using was that our adversaries can get this data the same way. And so they need to be able to do it to be on even footing. Yeah, I mean, they will say that they do that not just to protect us against terrorism, but to protect us against cyber attacks. Obviously, I think that's legitimate. We do have a significant security interest in protecting our homeland and uh, our virtual space from maligned foreign actors. But I don't think you can bypass any type of judicial process just because the bad guys are also able to get their hands on the data. Mm -hmm. I mean, imagine, you know, saying, well, we should just bust into this person's house and see if they have drugs. Because look, the bad guy is going to bust into that person's house. Right. The, uh, you know, the career criminal is going to try and rob somebody and find their stash of weed or whatever. Yeah. So I just don't think we should hold ourselves to the standard of if our adversaries are able to do it, we should do it without a prescribed process. I mean, look, these processes are designed to be frustrating. It shouldn't be easy to obtain data that contains so much personal information. There are ways we can balance the security interests with 
the need to protect individual privacy, but we actually have to go through that balancing process. And I think it's the judicial branch or frankly, uh, you know, administrative law judges and the executive branch, if it comes to that, who should be looking over the facts and making a determination of whether it is in our national security interest to purchase this data and not have um, this type of purchasing go on off the books, which is what seems to be happening right now. Remind us the, the, the difference with the burden between a warrant and a subpoena. So to obtain a warrant, you need to show probable cause that either a crime has been committed or is in the process of being committed. So it's just a much higher standard. You can think of probable cause as like 75% sure um, that this is going to be relevant to a criminal investigation. The standard for a subpoena is much lower. It is reasonable suspicion. In some contexts, it's reasonable articulable suspicion, meaning you can't just have like a vague sense that somebody uh, is committing right. some type of criminal I don't like activity. The looks of that guy. Exactly. It has to be like, <laughs> right. well, I have this indicia of data somewhere. Yeah. We got a tip from a Mr. So and so. So let's purchase this internet traffic and see what we can find. That is the standard. But that is still better than, you know what? Let's just, I don't have any suspicion at all. Let's just go to these companies, fork down some American uh, tax dollars and obtain this data ourselves comb through it, you know, once you have all of that data in a database, uh, there is no warrant requirement or subpoena requirement to search that data. So I think that's what makes it particularly um, dangerous. This is going up against some FTC enforcement actions against uh, private companies who have abused uh, their data collection practices. And, you know, the FTC has cracked down on these private companies and you know, the government has been caught red-handed, not just the NSA, but other federal government agencies and state and local law enforcement agencies have been caught purchasing this data. So this is really an extension of a broader problem here. Now, obviously, a warrant that we're talking about uh, oversight from a judge, is it the same with a subpoena? Because I have a vague recollection of, like, police being able to self-issue subpoenas. Is that a thing? Yeah, it is a thing in some jurisdictions, okay. uh, but there's still like a process. It's not the type of arbitrary, we're just going to do it without any oversight. Mm-hmm. Um, there's still a level of review, whether it's in the agency itself or from a judge to obtain that subpoena. So it d- doesn't require the same type of judicial oversight as probable cause, but it's something. It's some type of standard. So the reason that NSA would be doing this is one of convenience and and maybe velocity here that is just quicker? I think it's both of those things. Uh, I think it's quicker because you don't have to have any indicia of uh, reasonable suspicion, which means you don't have to go through the whole documentation process, which is probably very onerous. Uh, And then you're just buying a giant haystack worth of data. So just Mm. like other mass surveillance programs, you purchase the whole haystacks that you can find the needle in the haystack. So you have that, you know, at NSA headquarters, searchable by uh, intelligence community analysts. And you don't have to constantly go back and forth between, in this case, it would be the data brokers themselves uh, who are selling the data or the company that collected the data in the first place. It's kind of streamlining the process so that you can do everything in-house. But, you know, that's great for convenience, but I just think it's not, good for protecting personal privacy. I will say there's something illegal about what the NSA is doing right now. Yeah. Um, 
there is no law against purchasing data, even if a subpoena or a warrant would have otherwise been required. So that's incumbent upon Congress. If they are so outraged about this, they could actually take action, uh, as shocking as that sounds, uh, to prohibit this type of activity. And I think that's the effort that Senator Wyden is going to make, and he might get some bipartisan support from it uh, for it from uh, all corners of kind of the civil libertarian-minded members of Congress. Yeah, that was going to be my next question because it. it well, I was going to ask you like what what would NSA have to do to buy this data from the data brokers in the proper way? But they're doing it in the proper way because there's no prohibition against them doing it. Right. You know. There might be something morally objectionable about it. The NSA has voluntarily discontinued other programs where they had the legal authority, uh, but they got so much pushback that they just stopped doing it. Mm -hmm. The one that comes to mind to me is something called about collection, where for foreign intelligence purposes, they weren't only collecting internet traffic to or from a overseas target, terrorist target, but also any traffic, even if wholly domestic, that was about that target. Mm. So if you and I mentioned terrorist X in an email in a wholly domestic online communication, that was eligible for warrantless collection. Mm. The NSA got all this pushback about it, and in 2017, they said, you know what, screw it. It's not worth right. <laughs> It's not worth getting angry letters from Ron Wyden every three weeks. <laughs> right. Let's just stop it. Uh, <laughs> They have actually been authorized to resume that type of collection through FISA reauthorizations, but to my knowledge, they have not done so. Hmm. So this could be another circumstance where shaming, members of Congress shaming the agency might uh, end up having as much of an impact as actually passing a law, Uh, especially if you have an administration that's sensitive to these types of concerns. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, so what happens next? I mean, are we waiting on Senator Wyden to perhaps put together some legislation, see if he gets support from from other senators and so on? Yeah, so he already has put forward legislation that would okay. prohibit not just the NSA, but all government agencies from purchasing any data that would otherwise require a warrant or a subpoena. Yeah. Uh, and there have been hearings on this legislation. Like I said, there is bipartisan support uh, for it. The other side of the coin is there's bipartisan opposition. Mm. I mean, we've talked about this a lot. They're kind of, the parties don't neatly align on surveillance issues. Right. There's like the Ron Wyden liberal surveillance opponent. Then there's the Rand Paul type of conservative libertarian. Mike Lee in the Senate is another one. Yeah. But then you have kind of the, I guess, I don't want to uh, upset anybody here, but there's like the political establishment that's, generally more pro-security state. Mm -hmm. Think of uh, Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell and Nancy Pelosi, those types of people, Mm. who've generally been supportive of giving agencies the power to protect us against these foreign threats. Mm -hmm. So, The people who were in office during 9-11. Exactly. uh, (laughs) Who went through that trauma. And it's true. Right. Um, I mean, I don't mean to, I don't, you know, my, my laughter is ironic, not dismissive. Yeah, I mean, it is hard to be in that situation. Yeah. Uh, having gone through that with some level of responsibility and not want to do everything possible to prevent it from happening again. Right. Um, but so, you know, it's really hard. There's, It's hard to uh, prognosticate about the prospects of something like this going through Congress because it's been such a mixed bag for the civil libertarian coalition to get any sort of substantive anti-surveillance legislation passed mm-hmm. that it's just, it's really hard to tell. But we'll yeah. keep following it, that's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. 
All right, we will have a link to that story in the show notes. Ben, my story this week comes from the folks over at uh, Lawfare, um, and they're chiming in on some interesting developments here with um, the states of Texas and Florida. They've got a case coming up uh, in front of the Supreme Court. Supreme Court, rather. Uh, this is the Net Choice case, which we've discussed here. Just uh, quick before we jump into the, the the recent pivot here, can you give us a little? Uh, description of what the net choice case is about? Sure. So these are dueling cases from Texas and Florida. Each of them pass statutes that restrict uh, social media platforms. I think it's subject to a certain threshold. Mm-hmm. Um, so really the large platforms uh, from discriminating against certain political content. Right. Uh, so it's a requirement that they present viewpoint neutrality in whatever their whatever their oversight mechanism is for rooting out whatever they want to take down on their website. They can't do so on account of political opinions. Right. So in other words, Texas and Florida were upset because in their legislators' view, these big social media platforms were being unfairly biased against conservative views on the platforms. Now, for our conservative listeners, uh, they have a point when it comes to certain subjects. Mm. The two most high-profile incidents of this happening, one was the so-called Hunter Biden laptop. Right. Which, to get really meta about this, I don't even know what the laptop is about anymore. But (laughs) it is true that, uh, as it was called at the time, Twitter restricted access to the story for a couple of days because members of the intelligence community uh, and other observers told the Twitter content moderation team hey, this looks like a Russian operation. Uh, You should tread really carefully here. And it turns out it was not a a Russian uh, operation. There was a such thing as Hunter Biden's laptop. Yeah. Uh, So, I mean, I certainly think they had a right to be angry about that. And then the other one is the effort to police disinformation or misinformation as it related to the COVID-19 pandemic. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are some people who I kind of think are unhealthfully unhealthily obsessed with this. One of them is former data guru, Nate Silver. Oh, yeah. Who only tweets about content moderation policies related to (laughs) the so-called lab leak theory. Right. I want him to start talking about, you know, statistics again. Right. (laughs) But uh, I can't get my wish. Anyway, uh, the point of that is these social media companies tried to crack down on what public health officials were telling them was misinformation about the COVID-19 pandemic. It turns out a lot of it either wasn't necessarily misinformation or it was something that was the subject of a legitimate dispute. And Mm -hmm. so I think legislators in Florida and Texas felt particularly aggrieved that they thought their viewpoints were being subject to discrimination by these big tech-controlled social media companies operating out of Silicon Valley. Yeah. So the the, the platforms, the, the big social media platforms, sued saying that these laws were a violation of their First Amendment rights. And as you and I have discussed here, that seems right. <laughs> you, you are allowed to, uh, as a private company, you're allowed to moderate your platform as you see fit. Yeah, I mean, I have read all of the legal briefs on it. I, I'm still very dubious about the case that Florida and Texas are trying to make. This seems to me like compelling a private company to platform speech, even if for whatever reason they don't wish to do so. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's some case law around this. I don't think any of the case law necessarily helps Florida or Texas's case, but we'll see. I mean, it's a new day. They're going to be in front of friendly courts, so it's possible that 
um, these cases create a new precedent and a different outcome. Yeah. So in some of their recent legal briefings, Texas and Florida have pivoted and are trying to make the case that uh, this isn't a First Amendment issue. This is a civil rights issue that uh, platforms must not discriminate and they're comparing the discrimination uh, to racial or gender-based discrimination. Um, Can I, I... I will not swear. <laughs> okay. But to me, this is horse bleep. <laughs> Can we just talk about the differences between uh, gender and race-based discrimination versus viewpoint discrimination? (laughs) Please. First of all, one of those is an immutable characteristic. Right. Uh, You can't change your race or sex. Right. Uh, You are born that way, in the words of Lady Gaga. Yeah. Uh, And that applies to other immutable characteristics as well. I mean, certainly there have been arguments about things like sexual orientation and gender identity. Sure. Uh, that is not true as it relates to your viewpoint. You could always change your viewpoint. A lot of people in history agreed with some things that we would find very objectionable today. Yeah. Uh, so that's one element of it. The other factor that goes into this is a, his, a kind of a history of discrimination and whether whatever group is allegedly being discriminated against uh, doesn't have enough power in our political process. And mm. neither of those factors apply here either. You can make any argument you want. I have a hard time, and I just gave all this credence to these conservative arguments, but I have a hard time believing that there is historical, rooted discrimination against political conservatives in free speech cases. Mm. I just personally don't really think there's a strong case to make on that. You're welcome to disagree with me. Uh, But certainly they're not politically powerless, and that's kind of the standard that the court looks at when it applies strict scrutiny to these types of uh, classifications, race-based or potentially gender-based classifications. Uh, So it just strikes me as a very specious argument. I don't think it's going to be well-received by the courts. I think they're using the language of discrimination because it sounds similar. Um, But there are just, to me, very obvious differences between racial and gender and sex discrimination versus viewpoint discrimination. Yeah. What would happen if they got their way on this? In other words, if if this kind of moderation were suddenly categorized as not moderation, but discriminatory in the way that racial discrimination is. See, I keep thinking about this and I kind of want to go over the parade of horribles, what this might look like in conservative institutions. Okay. So let's say, um, you know, I wanted to speak at an NRA conference. uh, And my viewpoint was that guns basically should be banned. Right. Um, We should have a European style ban on all handguns. Okay. And they told me, you know, I don't want to platform this at our conference. We support Second Amendment rights. Uh-huh. Um, would I be able to sue them for viewpoint discrimination? They're a private company, just the way Twitter and or X uh, and Facebook, et cetera, are private companies. So would that be viewpoint discrimination? I mean, they couldn't discriminate against me on the basis of race because of our civil rights laws. But certainly, I think they have a right to, uh, associational rights to choose, you know, who would speak at a conference or represent them or be platformed by them. Yeah. Uh, let's say there was, I'm trying to think of all these, like, more conservative institutions, but, like, you work for 
a just let's just say like a contractor who does housework uh, and you have somebody come in who says everything that this company does is environmentally unfriendly, ethically challenged, you know, doesn't align with my views on the importance of federal regulations. Would that company not be able to fire you even though that went against the mission of the company, which was to be free from burdensome government regulations? I realize these metaphors might seem like a stretch, but I just think that's the Pandora's box we'd be opening if you start to talk about viewpoint discrimination as opposed to discrimination based on immutable characteristics. Yeah. I, I'll quote uh, from, the, again, this article in, in Lawfare. This is written by Daphne Keller. And uh, in the final paragraph, uh, they write, the state's 11th hour reinvention as defenders of civil rights is unlikely to fool the court. And it shouldn't steal focus from the real issues in net choice. This really is a case about online expression rules, the editorial rules set by the platform, the ones users might prefer, and the ones states have chosen to impose. It should be decided on that basis. Yeah, I think that sums it up pretty well. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just find it an odd... I, I mean, is this the classic case of just throwing everything at the wall when you you have a bad hand? So let's see if this works. Yeah, I, I mean, that's... I guess it strikes me as being funny that we're all we're all the way to the Supreme Court, and this this is the shenanigan we're trying. Yeah, I mean, look to an extent that is what lawyers do all the time. It's like here, accept this passionate argument I've made, but if you don't accept it, right. here are six alternative <laughs> arguments. Right. Any right. good lawyer is, is going to do that. Yeah, um, yeah. But there's kind of there's a limit on what I think even a very conservative Supreme Court is going to be willing to accept. Uh, and when it comes to this type of viewpoint discrimination being reflected in civil rights laws and precedents, I just, I don't think there's an argument there. Yeah. But it's not up to me. It's up to five members of the Supreme Court. There so. you go. <laughs> you don't think they're going to be unanimous in this one, Ben? You know, <laughs> as much as I would like them to, uh, to be on this particular question, not about the whole case, but just on this particular argument. Yeah. Um, I, I don't necessarily see that happening. No, fair enough. All right, we will have a link to this story in the show notes. And of course, we would love to hear from you. If there's something you'd like us to consider for the show, you can email us. It's caveat at n2k.com. now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and Zero Trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their SASE journey, visit netskope.com. All right. Well, Ben, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Josh Hargess. He is the AI security chief at an organization called Cranium. And our discussion centers on how the U.S. compares with other regions of the world looking to regulate AI. Here's my conversation with Josh Hargis. Obviously, uh, AI has been exploding over the past year. 
um, you know, mostly due to, you know, generative AI, uh, you know, chat GPT, large language models, these types of things. Uh, but obviously, that's not the only kind of uh, artificial intelligence that's been in development. Um, this has been coming, you know, for the past uh, decade or so. Um, and the U.S., as far as regulation is, con is concerned, has been thinking about this, um, you know, governance for some time, you know, from the inception of things like the Joint AI Center, uh, which eventually became the uh, Chief Digital AI Office. And then the things like the National Security Commission on AI report uh, that came out. Um, so this is not, you know, taking anybody uh, by by huge surprise. You know, we, the U.S. has been thinking about this. But I will say that the recent news from the EU with their AI Act um, has has definitely put them sort of ahead of us uh, as far as you know thinking about actual regulations, penalties. You know what what are what are going to be the costs of of you know doing wrong you know quote unquote within AI. But you know that's that's kind of the bit of the history and, and landscape of where we are now. Can you give us a, an overview of what uh, exactly is in the EU's AI Act? Sure. Um, I can give some some high level uh, things. So, so really, what they're most focused on is is risk based. Um, so, essentially, you know, what are the higher risk uses of AI? Um, you know, what are some of the lower risk uses? Uh, and and really focus on those high risk uses. Um, some examples there: uh, medical devices, vehicles. Uh, you know, influencing elections obviously is a big one. Critical infrastructure. Uh, but there's some things that are in there that are a little bit surprising too. Things like education, uh, recruitment, HR, worker management. Um, so there are some some things in there that may, maybe some folks wouldn't consider high risk, uh, but the EU is definitely putting up at the at the top of the list. And really, you know, obviously, uh, uh, generative AI in, in their case, they're calling it general purpose AI, GPAI, um, is is really the focus. Um, and and they have a lot of uh, uh, you know thoughts around transparency requirements, uh, documentation, copyright safeguards, um, these kinds of things, and and really what how they're looking at this is from a very blanketed response. So so they they want to take sort of an umbrella approach of you know thou shalt uh, do these things, thou shalt not do these things, uh, with financial penalties uh, that actually come with that. Yeah, it's, it's going to be my next question is. To you know, to what degree is the EU taking a, a carrot approach versus a stick approach? Certainly. So I, I think, you know, with with their guidance, uh, you know, they, they're they trying to roll out a carrot approach. You know, these are the types of things that, you know, we want to see from organizations as far as, uh, you know, AI security, AI assurance, AI governance. Um, and as long as, you know, trying to encourage folks to kind of do the right thing. Um, but certainly the the stick uh, is is large. So so up to in the I think their latest draft um, up to 38 million U.S. dollars, about seven percent global turnover, depending on the size of your organization. Um, so quite a large penalty, especially compared to you know some of the the regulation and and penalties that we saw around cybersecurity. And how does all of this contrast with what we're seeing here in the U.S.? Yeah, great question. So, so very different approach so far. So, from the U.S. point of view, um, we're seeing this as more of an agency-driven approach. So, uh, essentially, each agency within the U.S. is kind of taking their their own approach. Um, there's no centralized organization of this yet. Uh, we do have the executive order uh, that did come out. Um, so that's that's on safe, secure, trustworthy development and use of AI uh, that came out late last year. 
Uh, and that gives kind of a, a an, an umbrella of sort of guidance of where we think we're headed as far as governance uh, is is concerned, but it hasn't given any any sort of direct uh, you know guidance as far as penalties and and things like that. Now, instead, we're seeing a, an agency driven approach. So, for example, the uh, Department of State um, actually gave its its sort of readout of of how they want to develop AI and and be responsible for AI. Uh, and, you know, they kind of list out their four goals, uh, leverage secure AI infrastructure, foster a col- culture that embraces a- uh, AI technology, ensure AI is applied responsibly, innovate. So they're, they're very mo- much more focused on, you know, how do we accelerate what we're doing within our organization? Um, not as much on, on you know, uh, restricting the, the use of AI or, or thinking about uh, governance quite yet. Um, you know, there's there's other folks. Uh, for example, I mentioned them earlier. Uh, the Chief Digital AI Office, they have something called the Responsible AI Toolkit that kind of lays out guidelines for for how to develop uh, responsible uses of AI. Uh, that's within mostly the uh, Department of Defense, and you know they have this pyramid that kind of kind of has a uh, hierarchy of needs uh, for AI. But really, you know, nothing nothing quite. Uh, you know, stick as far as the carrot carrot and stick um, kind of comparison quite yet, um, but we do expect to see that that coming. Uh, you know, probably this year, uh, and then kind of beyond that, I would say what we're what we're going to expect to see from agencies like the FDA, for example, are agency driven approaches to this type of governance, um, and they'll probably look towards you know things that are coming out of the White House, but then also very much look towards. Uh, the EU AI Act, uh, just because of the global nature of the development of these systems and the global nature of of the economy uh, around this technology. You know, when it comes to uh, data privacy, it seems like most of the action here in the U.S. has been at the state level. Are we seeing any movement with AI at at that level? Certainly. So uh, California, for example, um, is leading the way with with their own uh, AI regulations. So we should see uh, that rollout early this year. Privacy is definitely uh, you know an important part of that, as well as AI governance in general. Um, and I think as as that rolls out, you know uh, you know that that does tend to happen uh, where California will lead the way in, in some of these areas, um, just by the sheer sheer nature of of and the size of the state. Um, so. We can imagine, you know, California rolling this out and then some states uh, start to follow suit. What about for organizations that are multinational? You know, if I'm a big tech company and I'm operating all over the world, uh, is is my navigation of this going to be similar to the way that I have to deal with something like GDPR? Yes, great question. And I, and I think that is the right uh, analogy. Uh, so just the fact that this is a global market, if you're a global organization um, and you have you know any citizens in in the EU, for example, um, then you're really going to have to look towards you know the strictest regulations that are out there. Um, there you know there may be uh, some leeway in in some other uh, uh, countries, um, but you know once you're writing your own regulations internal, your own policy and governance uh, internally, uh, you know just like GDPR, you you probably want to take a kind of holistic approach, you know, to that. Where do you suppose companies stand these days? I mean, when it comes to their attack surface, you know, I feel as though a lot of folks have a good handle on their sort of, I hate to use the word old school, but their old school cybersecurity uh, attack surface. But 
It feels like AI has thrown in a bunch of new wrinkles. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, we get that question a lot. First level of, of protection that we're actually hearing the most from organizations uh, is really just, you know, what is in my system? Uh, you know, we have we may have a huge organization with a bunch of data scientists, uh, you know, maybe maybe some uh, business units uh, that that are interested in using AI. Um, so really, the number one question we get is, you know, what what is in my system? You know, is somebody using AI that we're not aware of? Uh, what types of AI are being used? Um, and and then there's this concern of shadow AI. So you know maybe you do have a uh, policy of of you know thou shall not use ChatGPT in the organization for X Y Z, um, and and you're not aware of of the fact that somebody may actually be using that. Right, it's on your phone. You know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What do you suggest? You know, for organizations who are looking to to get a leg up on this, is there a specific type of uh, technology or talent that they should be pursuing? Yeah, so that's a really good question. So the talent is, is a difficult one. So we already have a shortage, uh, as as most of the listeners on this podcast would know, um, in cybersecurity. We know we know we have a shortage there. Um, we have we have a shortage in AI as a whole. So a talent shortage there. And then when you get to that intersection of folks that know something about AI and cybersecurity, um, those are kind of what, how we're viewing uh, unicorns right now. I mean, they 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 really don't exist. Um, there's very few of them. Um, so I think education is a big piece of this, ramping fo- folks up that are on the cybersecurity side on on AI technology and and vice versa. Um, that's a big part of it. But yeah, I think I think some of the things that we're we're seeing and suggesting, you know, really it's that visibility piece first. You know, what's on your system, um, understanding, uh, you know, vulnerabilities once you do know what's on your system. So mapping things to, for example. Uh, MITRE ATLAS, which is a, a threat threat matrix developed at MITRE, uh, similar to MITRE ATT&CK, uh, but focused on AI. Um, things like OWASP, you know, top 10 in, uh, in machine learning and also large language models. Um, so trying to understand what that threat mapping is from your system to, to known threats. Um, and, then, and then sort of that next piece of compliance. So how do you tell someone else uh, that you're doing the right thing, that you're adhering to you know, these pieces of governance that are coming out of uh, EU and, and the U.S. government and different agencies. Do you see the rest of this year, you know, 2024, as we look at it, do you expect that this is going to be a year of, of volatility in terms of how people are dealing with AI? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, you know, there's a lot of predictions that this, this is the year of AI, you know, even though we saw a, a massive explosion last year. Um, and I really think this year is is kind of the more mature adoption of AI. Um, so we're going to see kind of two things, in my opinion. I think we're going to see uh, organizations try to mature uh, their pieces of AI in their organization. Uh, you know, that includes uh, trying to secure that AI so that they're not susceptible to, to kind of known attacks. Um, but then the second thing is there is definitely going to be a little bit of volatility in in you know s- some of these vulnerabilities that are out there. You know maybe we maybe we'll see a big breach uh, this year. You know we're not we're not quite sure yet, uh, but we haven't seen the kind of breach that that's you know putting the fear uh, into folks around around some of these technologies. And part of that um, I, I believe is because we're thinking about this uh, ahead of time. You know this is not. Uh, the same as as the internet era, where where you know we really didn't think about cybersecurity until the internet had had really reached you know sort of everybody's uh, doorstep. Yeah, that's a really interesting insight that uh, 
you know, what we've been through with the growth of the internet has led us to be proactive rather than reactive here. That's right. Exactly. When we're talking about, you know, technology and the people who are applying it, you know, what about red teaming? How about the folks who are on that side of the fence? Yeah, good question. So, so we know red teaming is is a very valuable tool, uh, you know, within cybersecurity. Also, a very valuable uh, tool and methodology uh, within AI. Uh, so, so the idea here is, how can you discover new vulnerabilities within your AI system? Um, and so, you know, we've developed uh, at our time at at Miter, uh, a couple of folks uh, and myself, um, and then we've we've continued to work on this at Cranium. Um, but what kinds of talent do you need in that team? How do you stand up that team, whether it's folks with adversarial machine learning backgrounds, cybersecurity backgrounds, you know, pen testing, things like that. Um, then there's, you know, the execution of, of red teaming. So, you know, defining objectives, you know, what what type of system do you plan to, uh, you know, show this, this red teaming exercise on, uh, you know, building the attack out launching that attack and then finally doing that final impact analysis on on the business uh, aspects or the mission aspects um, and then sharing those those findings out to to the broader community and and the and the broader teams uh, you know such as a, a, a blue team or or you know the rest of the organization uh, doing development and and really what this gives you is you know that that new th- those areas of attack services that you aren't aware of that you know maybe currently map to Atlas and OWASP and these these other sorts of repositories, and so the, it becomes a very important tool for for uh, really understanding your AI security posture uh, when it when it comes to these items. So interesting stuff, Ben. What do you think? Yeah, very interesting. I've been uh, closely following the EU AI Act. I think we're at like step 50 of 300 and getting this enacted into law. Uh, I've had to study how the European Parliament works in order to figure out how this is going to advance. But I do think this is really going to change the industry because companies are going to have to figure out how to comply with uh, this EU law, even in the absence of U.S. legislation. Uh, And then you have to worry about the potential conflict, not just with U.S. federal law uh, for compliance, but also with a bunch of state statutes that might be passed in the coming years. So this is definitely something we'll be uh, following going forward. All right. Well, our thanks to Josh Hargis for joining us. Again, he is a former team lead for the MITRE AI Red Teaming Group, and he is the AI security chief for Cranium. We appreciate him taking the time. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. 
Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. A quick reminder that N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. Learn more at n2k.com. Our executive producer is Jennifer Iben. The show is edited by Trey Hester. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening.